Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring the Honorable Paul Hellyer. The call for public service into politics compared to the call of public service after you got demobilized in 46. Well, I, actually, I went to university yep. to get even with uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King, our prime minister, for wasting so much of my time. And, um, and the thing that interested me most was economics. And uh, in particular, one aspect of economics and that is, why do we have recessions and depressions? And I would ask my professors, and their answers, summed up, was, well, we always have them. I mean, they're part of the system. They're built into the system. And it's, it's part of uh, the way our, uh, our monetary system works. And frankly, I didn't like that answer. So I worked on it uh, myself and uh, and took uh, cues from one or two uh, uh, economists that I uh, had a little more reverence for and came up with the answer that both recessions and depressions are, were and are monetary phenomena. None of them needed to happen. We never needed to have a Great Depression. We never needed to have a meltdown in 2007. It was all from the way the system was put up and then operated. And so um, I had uh, a driving uh, interest in trying to do something about this. And all of a sudden, my professors and others were saying there was going to be a great, another Great Depression in 1950. And uh, everybody said the same thing. Yeah. Another Great Depression. <clears throat> so I said, I'm going to have to try and do something about this. So I tried to get a nomination to run for parliament. And uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. I spent about a year trying to get a nomination in Parkdale where I thought I lived. And finally, somebody told me the truth and said, look, Paul, this riding's taken. Boss McDish has decided that Colonel Hunter's going to have this riding. Why don't you run your own riding? Well, I said, I thought this wasn't my own. This is my own riding. I said, no, it's not. And when we looked at the fine print, the line went through the back fence of the of the ladies' ready wear store where my wife and I lived with our small daughter. So uh, started all over again. And uh, the only reason I was able to get the nomination, a there was a bit of drama which we won't go into this morning because it's yeah. about five or ten minute story. <clears throat> but we managed to get it largely because nobody else wanted it. It had never been liberal uh, since Confederation. The incumbent was the president of the National Conservative Party for Canada, um, been elected three times, and uh, no one wanted to go in there and waste their time and money, if they had any, to, uh, to in a futile effort, you know? And at that time, the Liberals, Toronto was not a stronghold for the Liberals. At the time that you were running, only one elected Liberal MP was serving at the time. So this was not a 
just a Davenport or a Parkdale uh, riding. It was a Toronto issue that the Liberals were not a strong contender for Liber uh, for the ridings in Toronto. That's correct, but there were four or five ridings that they thought that time they might have a bit of a chance in, um, but uh, Davenport was not one of them. So <clears throat> at that time, the elections were 13 weeks. Yep. And the, uh, that's because uh, they took a new uh, a new list every time of all the people and where they lived and who they were. And uh, oh. I had the nomination until about halfway through the election. And so I started in, and I had some interesting questions. Boston and McNish said to me, how many people do you know in Davenport? And I said, sufficient. <laughs> but, he didn't say, what do you mean by sufficient? <laughs> I would have had to say, well, 30 or 40. Uh, but it proved to be sufficient. So we put on a terrific campaign. It's, uh, it's in a, my book. And, uh, and we, even though the odds were 15 to 1 against me, the local pub on election day, <clears throat> we won. And uh, this was entirely driven by my deep felt feeling that we didn't have to have the kind of thing I had lived through in the depression because I was a child of the, of the depression and all the terrible poverty and people coming along the highway and looking for uh, a meal and uh, something to eat. <laughs> I have to ask the question because you talked about it a little bit beforehand. You left Canada because of William Lyon Mackenzie King, because of some of the policies that he implemented. When you came back, why decide to be a liberal at that time? Well, actually, um, I decided to be a liberal because I thought I attended at university. I attended the uh, the um, uh, meetings of all of the young liberals, young conservatives, young uh, CCFers, and so on, and uh, compared them and thought that the Liberal Party was uh, was the closest to what I probably believed. None of them perfect, that's for sure. <clears throat> and, uh, and tossed a coin and said, it's liberal. I, 1948, went to a convention in uh, Ottawa where I met uh, Prime Minister Mackenzie King. The more important, I met Louis Saint Laurent, and I was very impressed with him. And he, of course, was the leader at the time that I ran in 1949. So I, um, it, it fit what I thought was my uh, best route at the time. Getting that initial win, that first win under a belt, is uh, an accomplishment to any politician, to any elected official. Walking into the House of Commons for the first time, what was that moment like? You talk about it briefly in the book, but from your standpoint, you are now in the place of power in Ottawa to make changes that are going to affect day-to-day -day lives of people across Canada. What was that moment for you like? Well, the, the, the first moment is that just because you have your picture in the, on the front page of the second section of the Toronto Star doesn't mean you're somebody when you get to Ottawa. And you have... Absolutely, when I say no power, as close to no power as you can get mathematically without going to zero. <laughs> so uh, uh, it brings you down very uh, quickly to reality, which is the backbenchers, which 
new guys and new girls. There weren't many new girls at that time. Um, found out that they were there to support the party and the prime minister and whatever they were going to do, but they were not to think that they could introduce policy because backbenchers don't do that, except in the rarest, rarest of occasions. So it, um, that was reality. Well, then, of course, coming back to the, uh, the economic thing, along comes the Korean War. Yep. And so people, governments, can do in wartime what they won't do in the peacetime. They'll print money to win the war. And uh, so we didn't have the depression. And actually, we created enough money and had it uh, in pocket to last 15 or 20 years, more or less, you know, in the, in the system. So that we had what was, was called the golden years. And uh, there, was no, uh, there was no economic crisis during that period of time. And consequently, uh, I was able to pursue uh, the only career that was really made available to me, which was uh, in the field of defense, where I first became the uh, parliamentary secretary and then the associate minister, which is full cabinet rank, equal to the minister as long as you know that it isn't. And as long as you're bright enough to know that it's not. And then, of course, uh, uh, when later, when Lester Pearson formed his government, um, I was I became the Minister of National Defense and was able to do some things that I thought uh, were long overdue. You, your career spans such a longevity of the 20th century that um, you got you were around for some of the most important uh, aspects of what changed Canada. You were there for Queen Elizabeth being uh, installed as the vice regal of Canada for the Commonwealth of the Great Britain. Um, you you were actually at the ceremony, which I found fascinating that not a lot of people wanted to go to. And if you read the book, I was shocked that there was a lottery system for people wanting to go. And you were one of the few that actually did want to go. That's right. <laughs> But I was fairly sure that I was going to get re-elected first because I knew there was an election up, coming up. And Mr. Samurai had postponed the election, which was going to be in June, uh, in order that it wouldn't uh, conflict with the uh, coronation. So uh, we uh, went to the coronation. Uh, it was a wonderful experience, um, something that only happens once in a long lifetime because the Queen is still there. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, then we had to fly home when the election was called. And that was really um, uh, something I'll never forget because we uh, took off in an old Stratocruiser and uh, London, smog, you couldn't see anything. We got above the clouds, beautiful sunset. We flew the great northern route all the way around and it was sunset all the time. Oh, wow from when we left London until we were coming into Montreal, when the sun began to rise. Never seen anything like it before, and the mixture of, of colors is just absolutely fantastic. So you didn't really want to go to sleep if you could uh, watch that going on because it was so unique and so wonderful. You, you were also there, well, you were elected 
in that previous election that you were just talking about that was called right after the coronation, but you got back and just as the election was going on, you won that election. And then, like you said, you were appointed to Mike Pearson, Lester B. Pearson's, uh, the Right Honorable Lester B. Pearson's cabinet as Minister of National Defense. Yes, that was later. This is, yeah, we're, ju- we're jumping around, but you were first Associate Minister of National Defense under Louis St. Laurent, Prime Minister Louis St. Laurent. Uh, as you said, uh, you have to realize you're not really a cabinet member, but you are a cabinet member. And then... Uh, Mike Pearson gets uh, elected leader and he appoints you into the, the full cabinet and you are now at the cabinet table with full cabinet privileges. Getting that call up to that big leagues in some sense for politics, what was that moment like? Yes, there was a time in between that we're skipping over. We lost that election when I was first appointed Yeah, to San Ron's cabinet for a few weeks and became a full cabinet minister. As I said, as long as you have a brain in your head. Yeah. But then we, a few weeks later, we lost, and then I was in out, period. Fortunately, I hadn't uh, cut my uh, ties with a building company that I had become involved in, on, you know, which I probably shouldn't have, but did. And um, so I had somewhere to go. But then, after a change in my life, which I describe in the uh, in the book, I uh, ran in the by-election uh, just after. Well, there was a second election, '63, and then I ran in a by-election, got back in, and established my bona fides as one of the privy councillors. And we're talking about the four horsemen, and they changed it to five, and so on. And so it was from that that I moved into the, uh, oh, the, really the front ranks, one of the senior portfolios in the uh, Pearson administration. There's not much written about uh, the days of Pearson in, uh, in, uh, in opposition. Was he an effective opposition leader, or was he destined to always be prime minister? He was, he was above all a diplomat. He didn't like politics. And he really didn't want to be in politics, but Walter Gordon, his number one advisor, uh, really talked him into it because Walter thought he would be uh, Minister of Finance and run the country, and uh, Mike would be his own uh, Minister of uh, External Affairs. Uh, but um, we had some guys like Jack Pickersgill who were ferocious in opposition, and Paul Martin. And so they really uh, went after the uh, the Diefenbaker government, and I joined them and had uh, a good time because that's when they were negotiating the uh, purchase of the Bullmark missile and and so on, and it was uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, and I would always raise the question, why are you buying something that just flies halfway across the Gulf of Mexico? falls in. And uh, that's how I became you know, de facto uh, critic, defense critic, during the opposition period. And then when the Pearson government was formed, uh, for reasons that are described in the book, and I had helped him get to that stage, um, he appointed me to this uh, senior post as, to, as defense minister. The 60s and the time that you were appointed to Minister of National Defense, 
There is one big issue that you tackle right when you sort of the moment first few first year you become Minister of National Defense, and that is merging the three uh, uh, service levels of the uh, Canadian military into one. Did you have backlash from the Canadian military when you were uh, announcing those changes to make it instead of military, uh, army, and uh, uh, I'm forgetting the third one right now, air, into just one group of the defense? Well, not at the beginning because the early part was really applauded both by the military and the the public um, because uh, it was so inefficient. You know, they had uh, the same uh, torpedo, for example, for the Navy and the Air Force, but they had different parts numbers. So if you ran out of a part, you couldn't uh, phone the Navy and say, have you got a, such and such a part uh, because they wouldn't know how to locate it. Uh, they sold stuff at uh, a surplus. And in one of the worst cases, they actually sold some stuff that was new and surplus and another service had to buy it back and pay the full new price for it. Well, just example after example, but worse than that, they didn't cooperate during the war. And I lived through that because it was first in the Air Force and then in the Army. And it was very inefficient. So you learned to march in the, uh, in the Air Force and in the Army, and then they go in the Air Force and they say, you've got to learn to march. Well, I just did that. Well, that was that was Air Force. And uh, the same with gas drill and the uh, same gas mask. So, well, that was that was Air Force gas drill. And then the doctor comes along, which I describe in the book, with a needle, a fiendish look, and says, roll up your sleeve. And I said, well, I just had shots. He said, ah, yes, but those were Air Force shots. <laughs> And he gave it to me. And uh, there are so many examples from my own experience of incredible lack of cooperation. And not only these things that I'm describing, but during the war, um, the Canadian Air Force bombed the uh, Canadian Army on the road to Falaise because they couldn't talk to them. The radios were not simpatical. And uh, so, there were good reasons to bring what they called integrate, bring the, the three services into a much closer harmony. And the early parts of it didn't cause any uh, difficulty at all. And um, the, the number one reason finally was I found that the three services were planning for different kinds of wars. Well, how can the public afford to outfit the three different services to fight three different kinds of wars. You've got to pick the most likely and uh, put your main emphasis there and uh, and maybe a little bit for number two choice, but not for heaven's sakes having uh, the Air Force planning a two to five day war, thermonuclear all over because the world's wrecked and, uh, and the Army talking about a five year uh, mobilization like we had in World War II, and uh, the Navy half were in be- halfway between. And uh, so this was this was the ultimate, as far as I'm concerned. There's got to be a, a, a an organized an organization where all of the ideas can be brought together. And what was later Defense Council that I set up that was very efficient, 
efficient and, uh, and work out what was best for Canada. And that's what we did. When they, of course, the real problem came was just when we were changing the, the act to make it a legally one force, and of course, the uniform, which was proposed by one of my uh, air commodores. And I should have, there are two things where I didn't go a lot, where I went along with the advice that I got, because I got I had a reputation for overruling people and one of them was the uniform, because as soon as I saw it, this is not as beautiful as the naval officer's uniform, and it won't ride. But these guys look, were, so, were so gung-ho, the models that came with it, that I finally capitulated, and that was, of course, the biggest, biggest problem, because it was really the uniform that cost 90% uh, of the problem. And uh, doing it all over again, of course, you learn, uh, but you don't have a second chance. And that is that they should have had uh, a blue for for walking out, which all service, all three services had had at one time. And uh, and then khaki for summer, which all of the services had had at one time. And then whites for walking out for the Navy and uh, and for anybody wanting to get married white and this sort of thing. And with their own uh, distinctive uh, paraphernalia, hats and so on. And if we'd done that, I, uh, it wouldn't have been uh, the war that it actually was in the last uh, few weeks and months when uh, we had to get through, but finally did. Mike Pearson, Lester, Mike, uh, sorry, Prime Minister Pearson was known as the peacekeeper. He he won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. He was, the, as you say, the diplomat. How hands-on was he during your time as a national defense minister? Not very, because he was for unification. He didn't know what it meant, but he was for it until we got in trouble. And then he had... <laughs> A bit of a reputation for cutting his ministers down when they got in trouble, uh, so that he wouldn't uh, have to take the flag for it. But um, I had uh, turned down another portfolio because, on the basis I said this, this thing is half finished, which it was at the time. I said it's like being out in the middle of the river. You've either got to keep swimming to get to the other side, or go back and land and said, I've got to finish it because I don't think anybody else is going to. So I, I stayed and, uh, and it was only near the end and not on principle, but on politics because there were, the press was really vicious. And, uh, and so uh, he was going to, go along with the uh, opposition and put it off until after the new session in 1967, which was a centennial year. And um, I said, we, we can't do that because he didn't understand the rules very well. If he'd done that, you have to go back and start all over again. I, I, I've, I've always found Prime Minister Pearson fascinating because he, he he's the only 
politician that would actually openly announce that he's not seeking the next election before, like the moment after the last election just happened. He basically comes out and says, hey, I'm stepping down. This is the last election I ran in. I'm done. I'm over with. Was this a shock to most of uh, the cabinet and also your colleagues? Oh, yes. It showed his naivety in that in the political uh, scene. And, uh, of course, what it started was a, a race. And then when that started getting out of control, I was trying to pull the reins back in. But once you've got it started, it's pretty difficult. Uh, you ran in that leadership election. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, at the, who would eventually win that leadership election, was also a candidate for that election, plus a few other uh, notable names. Paul Martin, as you said, John Turner. Um, uh, winners, uh, it was a, a, an array of talent. That uh, did that leadership election, while it didn't officially start until a few, uh, probably about a year into that uh, term. Did that officially start when uh, Prime Minister Pearson announced his uh, his intention not to seek uh, another term as Prime Minister? He un- unofficially said, "Well, you know, if you want to make a few contacts and so on, uh, we'll go ahead," which is what everybody did, and then. Uh, when it started leaking out and uh, was embarrassing to him, I said, uh, cut it out. Did you, during that last term, you were uh, swapped into Minister of Transportation, correct? Yes. Was that a a demotion in your eyes or were you happy with that uh, ladder or that move into Minister of Transportation? It was about on a par with defense as far as seniority is concerned. Actually, um, by then, the, the uh, unification bill had been passed, and my associate minister who took over, on my advice, against Pearson was not going to put him in with, you know, the old little prejudice thing, I think. And I went and saw him personally, and I said, you'd be making a terrible mistake if you don't uh, put him in uh, my place as Minister of National Defense, so I said, well, finally, I'll take your advice and do it. And uh, the what happened in transport was Jack Brickersgill uh, was leaving to go to a new organization that was being set up, and he said there were only two people that, uh, that he would trust with it, and it was Lionel Chevrier and myself. And Chev was not uh, available at the time, and... Uh, and so I was, I was it, and it was fine, and I enjoyed it, and I managed to do a few things, most of which are not, you know, recorded because uh, it's the kind of thing that's routine. And I was a, if I may say so myself, a good administrator, and we uh, we tied, we finished some unfinished business, and uh, and so on, and uh, so it, it was, uh, it was fine, and. Uh, I wouldn't have minded staying in that if I stayed in the government. The 1968 leadership election, uh, the Liberals, uh, you came second on the first ballot and then dropped to third and then ultimately endorsed another candidate outside of Trudeau in that last ballot that you were on. Were you expecting, because you had not fully endorsed Trudeau during the convention, to not be named to cabinet when Trudeau named his first cabinet? Um, no, because um, he had Pickersgill phoned him and told him that he had to have either witness, either Winters or me. 
to represent what you called the, really the other wing of the party. And, uh, and uh, Pierre didn't like uh, Bob Winters. And Bob Winters uh, said, well, I want to be deputy prime minister. And, uh, or so I'm told. And Trudeau said, no way. And so uh, he bowed out. And I was uh, next in line and uh, was given the job. Did he ask you if you wanted to stay in transport, or did he just basically say you're staying in transport? Well, that's uh, that's an interesting question. When I went in and sat down, the first thing he said to me was, I apologize for stealing your party. Yes. That was the first thing he said. uh, Did you accept his apology? (laughs) I said, no, you want to fair and square under the rules that existed. (laughs) And uh, then he... uh, then he uh, said, yeah. you know, what about a portfolio? And I said, well, I can't get the one I really want because I know it's taken. That was finance because that's my, my bag, as it were. And um, so then I said, I'd like to stay in trans in uh, transport. And, uh, and I also asked him about uh, giving me Central Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And he agreed that he would uh, he would do that, and uh, because I have been in the business involuntarily, but long enough to know how the system works and what changes had to be made to make it work more smoothly. And uh, so he agreed, and, uh, and then an interesting thing happened at the first caucus. He and his uh, close advisors had apparently done some polling and decided they should go to the polls right, right away and win an election right away, but he hadn't told me that. So at the caucus, he got up and, and said, I'm appointing uh, Mr. Heather, the acting prime minister. And uh, it was kind of gratuitous because I was a senior minister, so I was really acting when he was absent anyway. But then he said, I'm going to ask the acting prime minister to explain why we should have an election right away. No warning. (laughs) Okay. Throwing you under the bus a bit there. (laughs) So I did did it. And uh, he seemed pleased. And uh, that's what happened. And of course, it was uh, a very successful election from the liberal standpoint. Going into that, did you expect to be that successful? Because you had gone from a minority government under Prime Minister Pearson twice to a majority government under Trudeau, or was it destined because of the Trudeau mania factor that was sweeping across Canada during that leadership election? Well, the Trudeau mania was was strong enough to carry us in. It was the first time uh, that I ran that I had an absolute majority. Oh, wow. That's... So being sworn back into cabinet after that election, you are now Minister of Transportation again with a uh, addition of housing. You, This is sort of your starting of the downfall of your leaving the Liberal Party of Canada as of what it is at that time. You are asked to lead a task force for housing and urban development. This 
should have been an easy task force from your standpoint. Shouldn't it have been? Well, it was an easy task force. But what, what was so controversial about it? Because in your book, you outline why you wrote two papers. You wrote one for public and one for cabinet. Well, that's because the, we had one that would applied to the public because it, it, the recommendations of the task force included uh, provinces, provincial, municipal, it, it covered housing and, and uh, urban development. It was a broad thing and it's, uh, it's still kind of valid, you know, 50 or 60 years later. Um, but um, the real problem was that the uh, senior bureaucrat felt that politicians shouldn't be making policy. And so he uh, took that line with the prime minister and uh, my deputy came in and warned me, said, I, I, I smell trouble, and so you should be prepared for it. And uh, just before he went to England, uh, Drew and I had lunch together uh, at his house. And I think I probably have a record for the number of times I had lunch with him one-on-one uh, -on -one because he didn't have, he didn't take many people to do that. Anyway, uh, he, he was just absolutely outgoing and said, oh, great to have the task force over, great to have you back in cabinet full time and so on, you know, build it up and made it, you gave me a bang on the knee and so on. And um, then... Uh, you talk about it in the book how it became very frosty. It was a sort of a night and day after that moment of everything is pleasant at first, and then when you start actually talking a little bit more in depth and more uh, substance, it goes a little bit more frosty. The difference, the difference was before England and after England, because Norman Robertson, I didn't know who it was for years, uh, beat me down there to see him, uh, and. Uh, Trudeau sent me a cable, asked me if I would take the uh, the house um, because he was tired and wanted to go home and sleep for a while. And so uh, I said, sure. And uh, then as soon as uh, we're finished in the house, I took a cab out. And, and that's when it was frosty because Lord Robertson had, had uh, gotten to him. And what I had precedent, which I mean, I would admit, and I think it was a great precedent, but it was first. Sometimes when you're first, you get shot. Anyway, uh, he, he had convinced him that I had done some terrible thing by not, uh, by, by saying that I was chair of the, of the committee. And it, I, I was the chair, I chaired all the meetings. And I was on television every night. Uh, just about for a number of weeks, and everybody in the country knew that I was the chair of the of the uh, committee. So, amongst other things, during the fight that ensued, was that they wanted me to change the report and say that I was not the chairman of the committee. And I said, "Well, that's just like cooking the books." 
Yeah. I don't do that. And uh, I, I could I could have gotten away with it because by then I had everybody pretty well tamed if I just, you know, had, uh, had hung in. But I was also concerned about the fact that the Prime Minister wanted to get our troops out of Europe and that uh, he really had no time for NATO and uh, that this was a foreign policy thing that was very important and uh, I didn't think his views really uh, were <clears throat> compatible with the average Canadian view and, uh, and so on. So, uh, there's so much I want to talk about before we get into the actual substance of policy because there's so much correlation of what you went through during that time with what's happening now in, in a global area. But uh, the one area I want to talk about last before we get into that part is Robert Stanfield. You no. sit as a you sit as a uh, independent M, uh, MP for, uh, if I'm not mistaken, for a term. Uh, you were elected as an independent MP, correct? No, I no. I sat as a first as a liberal, then an independent. Yeah, and then and I crossed the, crossed the floor and was elected as a PC once. That's correct. I apologize. Um, running under Robert Stanfield, Canadians from coast to coast will agree that he is the uh, best prime minister Canada has never had. Would you agree with that? No, just the opposite. Really? Why? Because he he had no vision for Canada. Okay. And I know that because when we were thinking of having a combined party, Action Canada, something I put together, and the um, Social Credit Party and the Tory Party were th thinking of forming a single party, which would see Stanfield get elected. So I was able to go out and sit with him and talk with him and his, and his chief buddy a couple of times. And I, I would ask him, well, what's your vision for Canada? And he would stutter and stammer as he did. And then he would finally say, well, I think we should have an industrial policy. And I would just shake my head in total disbelief. So um, in, from my perspective, <clears throat> He had reached his uh, Peter level as uh, Premier of uh, Nova Scotia. And uh, when it looked as if he might be, become Prime Minister, I thought, well, heaven help, help us, you know, that uh, what, I, I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, in 76, uh, Stanfield steps down and you run for after being defeated in the following election, after being elected as a PCMP, um, you decide after seeing the field of candidates, which you talk about so openly in this book, that they were not up to the task of taking on Trudeau. And you decide to put your name for it because you, you, you needed a substance candidate in that leadership election. You, I'm surprised because... The, the way that you word it is the conservatives looked at you and said you were too cons you were too conservative for them. You needed to be more liberal. How, how, how did this happen? Because as a liberal MP, as a liberal cabinet minister, you think you'd be the perfect fit. But you were calling out red Tories in the PC party during that leadership election. Oh, no, no, no. Um, I um, first of all, the dumbest. 
smartest decision I ever made was to run. But they were looking for somebody outside. And uh, what's the name of the chap uh, that, who just died, the former... Uh, uh, Don or Dan, um, I forget. I don't know how to pronounce his name, last name, but he's the former MP, Deputy Prime Minister of Vegerville out here in Alberta. Uh, absolutely. And um, he actually wanted John uh, Turner to run. And he took up, a, a, he made a list of Tory MPs who pledged to, to support Turner um, if he would go. And it was a long list, and it would have been a, you know, it would have been an easy thing for Turner to uh, to carry off. And I went to see Turner, and uh, by then he was ready to say that uh, no, that's not something he didn't want to to do. And I said, well, I think one of us should. And, um, and that's when I made this horrible blunder. But that wasn't the big blunder. I was winning that convention according to the best news until I made my speech. And it, it's, it's a fascinating thing, really. They got in touch with Bill Lee, my former chief uh, advisor, and said, tell us one thing that we should be concerned about. And he said, make sure you have a look at his speech. And I had prepared one, which was very good in my opinion, and I knew it well enough that I could have, you know, given it almost without looking at the notes, which is most important thing. <clears throat> and uh, and they, uh, they called me the night before and said, we want to see you. I said, I'm too tired. And they said, we've, 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 we've got to see you. And I objected and Finally, they used a term that I would never forget. We have too much invested in you. It's like a prized cow. Uh, and uh, so I finally capitulated, which was a big mistake, because you're tired, you're worn out, you go, and finally agreed that they could write a new speech overnight. And they did, and delivered it. Uh, Sean O'Sullivan delivered it to my uh, my door at a very early in the morning. And it was there when I woke up. <clears throat> I started, and I had I had been running on the idea of unity, of unifying the factions in the Tory Party, and I was, and I believed it. That was that was me. But in the speech, and Sean apparently didn't put it in. It was the uh, it was a one of the PR guys from Hamilton was working on the Tory thing, and uh, was to take a crack at the Red Tories. Do you think that hurt? Do you think if you would have stuck to your original speech, you would have potentially been leader of the PC party right now? I think so. Yes, and a lot of other people think so too. But when I, as soon as I, first of all, I said you, to the guy, you don't want to leave that sentence in there, do you? And they said, oh, yes. As soon as I said it, I knew it was game over. The, and the, press, the press were 
as I walked in, were encouraging me. I've never had that before, but they were always saying, good luck, Paul. And, uh, and I was delivering the, uh, the speech and the, the uh, commentator, former lead of the CTV uh, 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 network, yep. said, well, that's the best speech we've heard today because I delivered it well. But as soon as I said that, I knew it was game over because it's just like coming down a highway and seeing something pull out in front of you and you can't stop and you hit it and you know that it's game over. And from then on, it was just... It was just uh, As I said, you, you have had a career span in, uh, uh, from the... 40s, 49 is when you were first elected at the age of 25, to 76 when you uh, ran for the PC leadership. You have thought about running, you did think about running after that a few times, but uh, you ran in the 80s and 84, if I'm not mistaken, for your old riding, and you tried to get the nomination correct. Do you miss it still? Do you miss the work that you got to do in Ottawa, that you got to make policies that affected people's lives? Well, there are two answers to that question. It, to be in, in Ottawa in a position of no power or in opposition where you can't do anything, I absolutely would not want to be there under any circumstances. If you had the power to do what you know should be done for the country, that's different. Because I sent the present prime minister, the day he was elected, a letter saying, uh, if you want to be a great prime minister rather than just an ordinary prime minister, you want to be a great prime minister like Lincoln, for example, comparable, here are the five things you've got to do. Hasn't done a single one of them. So the, 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 the situation, in my opinion, you've got no party in Ottawa that is really standing up for the people in the areas where they should be, like in stopping uh, geoengineering and, uh, and dropping this poison on us every day that they do. Absolutely terrible. They, they're poisoning the, the, the air we breathe the water we drink and the soil where we grow our crops. Day after day, four little planes taking off from Billy Bishop Airport before sunrise and still going after sundown. Seven days a week. I think 365 days a year. I'm not sure that they take Christmas off or not, but they certainly don't take ordinary holidays off. And dropping this poison on us, which is affecting thousands of Canadians, maybe maybe millions of Canadians who are getting uh, premature Alzheimer's and uh, Lou Gehrig disease and the, the number of autisms, uh, autistic children is increasing dramatically. And these are all tied to the, to that geoengineering uh, 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 proposition which should never ever have been agreed to 
there's just a court case on now that apparently they're losing that to, to try to stop it. But it uh, is a political decision. And just because uh, the U.S. Uh, shadow government wants us to do things like that and uh, get uh, prepared to uh, to have a mass extinction of the human race, there's uh, no reason why we should go along with them. Do you see that happening right now with everything that the Canada and the world is going through with COVID-19? We have pan- a pandemic that is a global pandemic that is killing people left, right and center. Uh, every day it seems like there's another new case of COVID-19 in Canada, another few uh, cases of uh, people dying from COVID-19. Do you believe that Canada is responsible for these deaths? Um, Canada is not. But Canada is cooperating with the people who are, in my opinion. And who is that? Well, it was developed in the United States. And then they started working with the, uh, the uh, place in Wuhan where uh, they melded it with, uh, with bat viruses to make it more effective and so on. And then whether it was leaked out or whether it was done deliberately, I think, the Congress should try to find out. What I'm going to promote uh, now, as soon as the Congress meets, is the idea that forget the midterm elections and start working to find out, A, what's been going on in your own country in the last 20 years, been 50 years, and uh, defund parts of the, of the armed forces that are not loyal to the United States and that want to uh, to have a massive population reduction and to establish uh, a fascist government by, for, and of the rich elite. And uh, now they're calling it the Fourth Reich, which is, I think, an appropriate word to call it. And these things you should be looking at, uh, and you, you'll have to give an amnesty to people to talk because some of the things they've done in the last few years have broken all the laws under the guise of uh, national security. So provide an an amnesty under the National Security Act and uh, bring them in uh, nonpartisan to tell their stories because there are literally hundreds of people that want to tell the truth, but they can't because heaven only knows what happens to them if if they do. They're in real trouble. There's one area that I want to talk about because you've mentioned it a few times, and I want to understand what you mean by it. What is the U.S. shadow government, in your opinion? What is the U.S. shadow government, in your opinion? What is, what is it? Yeah, it's a, because you talked uh, about you talk about uh, the U.S. shadow government that oh, has been working with uh, has developed this virus that uh, worked with the Wuhan. So, what is the U.S. shadow government? Is it? People? Is it uh, organizations? What is it? Well, it's a, it's a, that's a long story that we haven't got time for. But we can, I give you briefly. After the World War II, uh, we, the Allies, thought we won. But um, I found out in the last two or three years that we didn't. Because you and talk we, in the book that. Germany never, in your opinion, Germany never actually conceded the war. They never actually admitted defeat. 
they actually the Nazis just went underground. Absolutely, and uh, they went underground to form a base on uh, in Antarctica. And uh, I had thought they had only gone there when they realized they were going to lose the war. But I found out recently that is not true, that they were working on it uh, uh, as early as 1939. And um, then Admiral Byrd, and I just read a part of his diary for a trip down there in 1947, and I don't know if it's fake or not, so I'm not going to quote it, but it, uh, he went down there with a flotilla because he knew that there was a base there and that uh, the Nazis had sent their best scientists and, uh, and uh, engineers and others and a couple thousand uh, Scandinavian girls with blue eyes and fair hair and all of the things to establish uh, Newsham, whatever it is, literally translated the New Berlin as a government in waiting. And uh, he thought it would be an easy uh, take because he had a huge flotilla, including a aircraft carrier, uh, Operation High Jump. And uh, he got there, and uh, a couple of flying saucers came out of the ocean, sunk one of his ships, killed some of his men, and he had to hightail home. And he was furious and wanted to nuke them to take them out of existence. But by the time he got home, under Operation Paperclip, which you can read about uh, by going to the internet, uh, the United States brought in hundreds, maybe thousands of scientists uh, from, from Germany after the war uh, the president approved it, but he said not if they're connected to the, uh, to the Nazi party. But of course, the officials paid no attention to that, as they often do. And they brought them in, gave them new names, new CVs, and appointed them to high positions, both in the military and civil governments of the United States. So by the time Byrd got back, they were sufficiently in control that they wouldn't let him go back and take a vengeance of the Nazis in, uh, in the New Berlin. Instead, they promoted him and had a ticker tape thing or something or other. Um, but they also moved the operation to the west part of the country to build what we call flying saucers, UFOs flying saucers. And they've been working on that for 70 years. And uh, it's a huge operation. And uh, they have built in that period of time a huge space fleet, which is now being consolidated under the space force uh, by the president. And it is all part of what I call, and others call, the cabal. And the cabal, very quickly, 
consists of um, the Bavarian Illuminati, the um, Three Sisters, as I call them, Bilderbergers, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission. And then right at the top of the heap, and they're nearly all Bilderbergers, the banking cartel, which has more power, in my opinion, than the President of the United States. Which you talk about in your book, The Money Mafia. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the oil cartel. And incidentally, well, we could come back. They have the, the, they have the technology to save the world from overheating. And they're keeping it secret. Zero point energy. It's all there. It's ready to go. But they're, they'll be damned if they don't take the last trillion dollars out of the earth before they let the planet go up and smoke. And. Uh, then they try the um, international uh, corporations, which are nearly all controlled by the by the three sisters, especially the bankers, because they have interlocking directorates and it's all a part of one great big thing. And then uh, they go into the uh, to the uh, intelligence areas, the CIA, uh, almost pure Nazi. Alan Dulles, who became head of the CIA, and his brother were Nazi um, admirers, and, he, and Dulles brought in a, the whole gang so that the CIA is, is a key to the whole uh, alternate government or shadow government or whatever you want. It's a, one of the most important things. And then the NSA, and the, uh, and the FBI to a certain extent, MI6 in Britain, and the Israeli Mossad. Is that happening here in Canada? Not to my knowledge, but I don't know what's happening in Canada. It's because nobody tells us, as they don't in the United States. And then a huge swath of the US military who are destined, who are many of them, Nazi control were destined to wreak their revenge on both Russia and the United States for joining the Second World War uh, and as part of the Allies. And they, they are in a position now to do something about it. So I've, in my last two, in a couple of books, I've put in some possible solutions, the latest one being to defund the uh, the armed forces to reduce their expenditures by 50%, but it has to be directed to the Space Force and to the CIA should just be wiped out totally. And, uh, and I give a list of five or six organizations that they should do, but what this, this uh, committee of the two, of the two parties should be doing is is forming several uh, things. One, to find out what's been happening for the last 70 years. Two, what the situation is now. Three, who developed the coronavirus and why. Uh, are there others coming down the line? It's a military thing, there's no doubt about that. 
And uh, who, who ordered it uh, to be uh, to be uh, done? And uh, who did they have in mind to use it on? And all of these things. That's what they should be doing, is finding out, trying to get the truth. Because the people don't get the truth. And if there's one thing that you have to agree with uh, President Trump on, is there's a lot of fake news. Because, um, as the author of the uh, true story of the Bilderbergers said, um, almost every, every single English language outlet, print and um, electronic, is either owned or controlled by a Bilderberger. So the people have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, unless they've read one of my books or somebody else's, and there are a lot of other good books. In, the, in my latest book, uh, uh, Liberated, I have a glossary of uh, two pages of, uh, of books that people should read if they really want to know uh, what the, uh, the score is and what they should be doing. Um. Mr. Uh, Honorable Hellier, Paul, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I do have one last question before we do go and uh, before we wrap up. Looking back on your life, are you happy with how it's turned out? I'm a happy man because I'm doing what I think I should be doing. I'm I have a very close connection to the Creator because what we're fighting here is a spiritual war and it's uh, the the forces loyal to the creator versus the forces loyal to the errant son, Lucifer. Some people call him Satan or the evil one. And that's what's, uh, that's what's going on. And uh, so uh, I'm very happy that I've been able to play some small part in bringing out the truth, even if it uh, has been very costly from the standpoint of people who think, well, uh, it's just what happens in the old age that people start having hallucinations or something like that. Uh, but um, I've written four books on this, uh, these subjects, including the latest one, which is uh, the most up-to-date, but uh, The Money Mafia is probably the, uh, the most important one, if you want to know what happened. And uh, I think now, finally, you can get them from your favorite bookstore, or if you want an autographed copy for Christmas or to give somebody, you can get it from my uh, website, which is Paul Hellier Web, all one lowercase, one word, dot com. It's Paul Hellier Web dot com. And you get a copy in the mail that uh, has uh, is individually or, uh, <coughs> autographed to the uh, to the purchaser or to uh, somebody else if they want to make it uh, a gift and uh, so I'm trying to get the word out as best I can. and uh, Well, we will put uh, the link to your website in our show notes. So that way, if anyone's looking to read one of the, I, I want to say, I'm just doing rough math here, 17 books that uh, Paul Hellier has written in his lifetime. I only claim, claim 16. One was a rewrite. Okay, 16. I apologize. So 16 books. Uh, I would recommend you pick up uh, the one that I picked up to start with, Hope Restored, My Life and Views on Canada, the U.S. World, and the Universe. It is an interesting read. Uh, 
Honorable Paul Hellier, I want to thank you once again for this amazing opportunity to sit down and chat. Um, again, to my listeners, the link to the purchase of all of his books and his website will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Hellier. It's been my pleasure. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Whoa!